passage today is going to be Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. Uh, if you're new here, or if you're new to the Bible, uh, you can take one of the pew Bibles there, and it'll be on page 824. Again, that's 824. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, the large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the small numbers there are going to be the verse numbers, so you can follow along with us. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can consider that our gift to you this morning. Uh, we want you to have it, we want you to read it, and uh, to learn to love it, hopefully. So we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 uh, through 25. Uh, secondly, if you haven't been with us at Rockfish before, uh, we do what's called expository preaching. And so we're going to, we move through books systematically, uh, typically verse by verse or chapter by chapter, and we try to trace out the author's argument so that we can get at his intent, what he meant to communicate to the original audience. We're looking for the main idea of the text. And so we follow that main idea of the text and we see uh, what it means and how it applies to our lives and how it applied to their lives. And so we're trying to understand uh, what God has wanted to communicate to us through his apostles, through those who wrote the scripture themselves. So let me read verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that Paul took the time to... uh, communicate the difference between promise and law to us, to defend his one true gospel against a false gospel that had risen up in Galatia. We pray this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take the words of this book and fill us with your spirit and conform our lives to them, that you would show us what you want to communicate to us, Father. Give us understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to this point in the book of Galatians, uh, to summarize the first two chapters, Paul defends his authoritative apostleship, that is, his right to speak on behalf of God. Then he defends his gospel starting at the end of chapter 2. He says that um, salvation comes not by works. He says it three times, not by works, not by works, not by works, but by faith. He says that justification, or being declared right before God, comes by faith, by believing in God. He then defends that argument from the experience of the Galatians in the first five verses of chapter 3. He says, you know this from your experience. You started with the Holy Spirit at your conversion. 
So he argues from their experience. Then he argues from the scripture. He points to Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then last week in verses 10 through 14, we looked at how he argued from the cross. He says, you see, Jesus became a curse for us that we might inherit the blessing of God. That is true shalom, true peace with God. The harmony of all things, human flourishing in the highest sense, giving glory and worship to God as we were designed to do. And now this week we're going to see him continue his argument as he answers some objections about the law and the promise. So that you can kind of grab onto the, the main idea of our text this morning, I want to make that explicit And in these passages, I think that it is, the law does not negate the promise, but points to and supports the promise. The law does not negate the promise, but points to and supports the promise. And our exhortation this morning is to trust the promise of God, not your performance. Trust the promise of God, not performance. Let me read uh, 15 through 18 once more. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, that the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, it's likely that the Apostle Paul here is anticipating the argument of his opponents, the Judaizers, who had come into Galatia and been teaching false things about salvation. Remember, they'd been saying, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You have to supplement your faith by works of the law, dietary restrictions, and particularly circumcision. So you have to do these other things. And Paul has vehemently raged against that and said, no, salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he said, their argument probably went a little bit like this. Okay, Abraham gets that covenant. He believes and it's credited to him as righteous. We'll give you that. Yes, yes, yes. That's all well and good. But you see, this guy named Moses came after Abraham, Paul, and uh, now we get the law. And so you see, really, the law completes the covenant that was made to Abraham. The law completes this faith. We have to add to it. See, Jesus plus works of the law equals salvation. Silly Paul. And Paul's going to here argue, no, 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 my friends, you have actually misunderstood it. The law does not annul the promise. In verse 15, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. What does Paul mean? What is he doing here? Well, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. What he means is, like, even if a human covenant can't be um, annulled or negated based on things that come later after it's been ratified, I don't know what we call it today, maybe notarized, I don't know, uh, that how much more so with God, how much more true is this of a covenant or a promise that's made with God? Let me give you an example. Uh, a will is a legal binding document, right? Let's say we have a wealthy lady and she has two daughters, a rich daughter and a very poor daughter. And so in her will, she leaves all of her money to the poor daughter. Well, on the day that she dies, bless her heart, uh, the, the poor daughter inherits all that money But what happens is, is on that same day, the rich daughter, you know, she invested in some poor stocks, and they went belly up, and she loses all of her money. The poor daughter still inherits all the money. In other words, the will holds up despite the new conditions. 
The will holds up despite the new conditions. Paul is saying that the new condition of the law does not negate the Abrahamic covenant or the promise that was made to Abraham when he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the law coming doesn't negate the promise that came beforehand. And indeed, we see that promise fulfilled years later in Jesus. And that's what all this not offsprings, but offspring is about. He's just pointing out that the blessing of Abraham is actually fulfilled and realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he comes and lives the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And then rises again on our behalf. And it's through faith in him that we enjoy the blessing of Abraham. Why? Well, because last week we, were, we learned he became a curse for us that we might inherit that blessing. Right? We talked about his active and his passive obedience. He went to the cross and suffered on our behalf. But he also obeyed on our behalf so that we wouldn't be in the red, but in the black. That we also inherited his righteousness from his perfect life. So Paul here is simply saying addition is not subtraction. Salvation is by promise, not performance. But it is interesting to think about that for a second. What if salvation did come by the law? What would that mean about God? Well, first, it would mean that he's not a very good promise keeper, and we probably shouldn't trust him. But secondly, it would mean that Jesus didn't need to die. I remember back in chapter 2, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if salvation was through the law, then Christ Jesus died for nothing. So the death of Christ would have been in vain. Paul here wants to show that the concepts of law, the covenant that was made at Sinai with Moses... And the concept of promise, the covenant that was made with Abraham earlier on, 430 years prior, are mutually exclusive. They have different functions. And that, again, in inheritance, if you look at the end there in verse 18, it says, For the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. You know, for a promise to bring result, it only needs to be believed. But for the law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. For example, if I tell you that my Uncle Jack wants to meet you and that he wants to give you $10 million, the only way that you can fail to receive the $10 million is to fail to believe my claim. So if you laugh and go home rather than uh, coming with me to meet Uncle Jack, then you might not ever get the money. But on the other hand, say my fictitious Uncle Jack is willing to leave you his inheritance of $10 million. But it's on a condition. You have to go into his home and live with him and take care of him in his old age. See, then you have to fulfill the requirement or the condition in order to get the money. See, a gift or promise needs only be believed to be received. But a law or wage must be obeyed to be received. This is the same kind of thing that's going on when God makes his covenant with Abraham. Remember we talked about uh, God has Abraham cut the animals in half and they're going to walk through them as a ritual You know, they're cutting a covenant or cutting a deal, you've maybe heard. And so they're saying, if I don't keep up my end, may me be cut like one of these animals, killed. And if you remember, we talked about how Abraham kind of, well, fell asleep. And only God passed between the animal halves. Why? Because the covenant in no way relies upon the performance of Abraham. Our salvation in no way relies upon our performance but simply upon the promise of God. By faith, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Salvation is not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so again, our exhortation at this point is to believe like Abraham, to be like him, believe the promises of God. Now, the obvious question at this point, uh, Paul raises himself and answers himself in verse 19. They're going to be sitting back going, well, why the law? So verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It imprisoned the world under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's start by talking about the latter end of verse 19 and verse 20. That's the part that says, um, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, and then verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What does this mean? It seems to be extremely cryptic. And as I thought on this all week and really meditated on it, I came to this conclusion. I don't know. There are over 300 varying interpretations on what this portion of Galatians means. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through each of those, starting with the first one. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Some of you got real nervous there for a second. I am going to offer you my thoughts and then someone else's thoughts, so maybe one or two. I think the point at the end of verse 19 and verse 20 is simply this, to demonstrate the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant and the inferiority of the Mosaic covenant. Tracking with that? See, Moses receives his covenant through an intermediary. But Abraham deals directly with God. Maybe you want to think about it like this. Say President Obama, for some reason, wants to write you a letter. And so he has his secretary pen the letter for you, and he signs it at the end. He puts it in the mail and sends it to you. You open it up. That's pretty cool, right? Got a letter from the President of the United States. But think of this. President Obama shows up at your house, knocks on your door, asks if he can come in. He sits down, maybe has coffee or tea. I don't know what his preference is. And he tells you what he had to say in the letter, what he said in the letter himself. Which is better? I think it's obvious, isn't it, right? It's the president coming to your house. So the same thing is kind of going on here is what Paul's argument is, in my opinion. Is he saying, Abraham dealt directly with God. Moses had some intermediaries. Both are really, really awesome. But it's clear which one is superior and which one is inferior or subservient to the other. So the point is, is that the law is subordinate to the promise. I think uh, Jared Wilson offers some interesting thoughts in this same vein. He says this. Why is the gospel better than the law? Why is Jesus more glorious than any other intermediary? Because it is God himself doing the job himself for the people all by himself. Consider the exhaustive and exhausting comprehensiveness and rigor that the law entails. Multiply that by the glory that radiated on Moses' face that was transmitted on a mountaintop via 10,000 flaming angels. Multiply that by the precise measurements, a routine cycle of sacrifices, and in every T, crossed attention to detail. Now consider that Christ Jesus is more glorious, more precise, more fulfilling, more encompassing than all of that. 
And consider that Jesus doesn't just hold up his end of the covenant of righteousness. He holds up our end too. An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He does his job and ours. The promise made to Abraham is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is himself the blessing of Abraham, who is greater than the law. So that brings us back to our original question. Why then the law? And so Paul clearly says right here, it was added because of transgressions. And in God's economy, this will make a lot of sense. You see, law and promise are actually going to fit together a little bit. The law is going to support the promise. Added because of transgressions. Paul earlier in Romans, well, I guess later, but in Romans tells us in chapter 5, verse 20, that the law is actually added to increase transgressions, to increase sin. So the law actually reveals the existence of and the extent of sin. The law reveals the existence and the extent of sin. See, it's never intended to give life. It's not its function. Rather, its function is to reveal man's weakness, his wretchedness. Its function is to choke out our pride and to drive us towards a Savior. Maybe you can think of the law's purpose a little bit like a mirror. I'm sure most all of us, when we got up this morning, we went to the bathroom, we went to that mirror, and we looked in it, and we were like, oh, no. You know, I have got some work to do before I go out of the house this morning. I don't have that problem, so I don't know what that's like. (laughs) Just kidding. But anyway, we go to the mirror, and you look in that mirror, and you go, oh, man, there are some flaws here. I I need to comb my hair. I don't have much hair, but I need to comb my hair. My teeth are looking a little rough. I need to brush my teeth. You see, the mirror, what it does is it functions to reveal the flaws. But what you don't do is take that mirror and try to comb your hair with it. You don't take the mirror and try to brush your teeth with it because that would be ridiculous. The mirror is just simply not designed to do that. In the same way, the law is simply not designed to give life. It's not designed for us to justify ourselves. It's not designed to make us right with God. The law instead reveals the existence of the flaws. It reveals the existence and the extent of sin. Further, the law, we're told in verse 22, that the law or the scripture, the word of God, imprisoned everything that is the world under sin. The world is in jail. See, when we don't have God, we're lost in our sin, we typically respond in two ways when confronted with law. The first is we try to be really, really good. Maybe if you're in our Christian kind of context uh, where religion is kind of prevalent, we we set up our own religion. We say we're going to listen to this much Christian radio, we're going to listen to our Bible this much, we're going to participate in this many voluntary activities. And through these things, at the end of the day, when my head hits the pillow, I'll go, I was justified today. It might look different in your life. For me, uh, it's the... The, the kind of the productive day. If I can get to the end of my day and lay down, I go, man, you know, I did X, Y, and Z. Productive. Awesome. I justified myself today. But there are going to be days when I fail. Lots of days when I fail. And that can't rule me. I can't actually justify myself by these, these acts that I've set up. Second response to the law is, is a little bit different. Is that completely create our own standards. We throw out any idea of objective truth or morality. What's true for you is 
true for you and what's true for me is true for me. There's not really any way we can know truth. Maybe you've heard it this way. The only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. And you go, that doesn't make sense because it's contradictory, right? Itself is a truth claim. So the second response, we make our own standards. We come up with our own ethereal ethical code that we typically fail to adhere to, and then we just change it kind of as we roll with the punches so that it suits us, suits self. See, both of these approaches, while different, serve the same purpose of following our own code, justifying ourselves, doing it ourselves, where, where in both of these approaches to the law, we set ourselves up on the throne that belongs to God. We learn to accept and love ourselves. I was born this way, and once I learned to accept myself the way that God made me, whew, I'm all right, I'm justified. Well, that's antithetical to the scripture. And I think that some of uh, lyrics, some contemporary, some not so contemporary from songs, kind of capture that sentiment for us. The first. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Or with a more contemporary example. Doing whatever we want, this is our house, this is our rules. And we can't stop, and we won't stop. These lyrics indeed capture a great truth. That when we do not have Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit of God, we prefer lies to the truth. As Romans says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And worship created things, sex, money, power, people, instead of the Creator. Indeed, when we see that the light of the world has come in, it exposes our sinful deeds. And we love the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Truly, we are imprisoned to our sin. And we can't stop. And we won't stop. Apart from Jesus, everything is imprisoned under sin. Captive. The law declares our inadequacy. Sin increases. We fall in love with our prison. I mean, it's only natural that the law would increase sin. Think about it. When somebody tells you not to do something, what do you want to do? The very thing they told you not to do. My wife pulls something hot out of the oven. Don't eat it. You'll burn yourself. Mm -mm. I pretend that it tastes real good, even though my mouth is on fire. Maybe a better example. uh, Somebody tells you, don't touch this red button. What do you want to do? You want to touch the red button. Or this morning, I was getting ready to come over here, and I have something on my leg going on. I don't know what it is, but it itches. And I'm going, don't itch that. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. If something itches, you don't want to scratch it. But, but I shouldn't scratch that. It'll be bad news for me. But I had to scratch it anyway. Because I see, the law increases transgression. It doesn't bring life. Or maybe another example. When I was a child, and I guess now even into my adulthood, my mom used to, to try to make me eat Brussels sprouts. Now, I cannot think of a more vile and disgusting vegetable. They are awful. Awful. <laughs> when I was, when my son agrees. They are terrible. When, my mom was grow, when I was growing up, she used, to try, she used to make me eat them. Right? I had to eat one or two before I could leave the table. She would command me to eat those Brussels sprouts. And I would choke them down. But here's the thing. Her commands couldn't make me like the Brussels sprouts. Because I hated them. 
so too God's commands and the law cannot transform those who hate God. And apart from the Spirit of God, we are those who hate God and love self. Love to self-justify. We love to set up our own ethical codes. We can't change our own spots. As Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Once more, the law cannot produce life. It cannot change our very nature. Our behavior modification cannot transform our hearts. The law is like a cage. If it has bars, it can keep the lion from eating the lamb. But it cannot force the lion or prevent the lion from wanting to eat the lamb. It cannot change our hearts. So the law is to put into place to reveal the existence and the extent of sin. But its second purpose is tied up with the first. Indeed, is to drive us towards the Savior. It shines light on our wicked deeds. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes in, we're able to see our waywardness and our need for a Savior. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. John Stott talks about these verses this way. I'm going to quote him at length here. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, and condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, and under the judgment of God. Helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin that judgment and judgment that the gospel shines forth. The law is meant to drive us into Christ so that the glorious grace and mercy can shine forth in the gospel as the stars do against the night sky. The law here is also talked about as a guardian. The word can also mean tutor. Maybe you want to think about it like like a babysitter. And see, uh, in Paul's day, there's usually a slave or someone in the house that was supervised the children on the parents' behalf. Typically, this person would remove freedom from the children. They would be uh, the subject. They would be subject to the guardian's teaching. See, the purpose of the guardian or the tutor was to prepare the children for life as free persons. In the same way, the law reveals the character of God, and we see ourselves in that. When we truly see God, we recognize how unholy we are and how holy He is. We're confronted with our filthy condition. With Isaiah, we are pushed to move into that life of the free person. Only when we cry out as Isaiah did when he saw God in the temple, 
Woe to me, for I am ruined. God's holiness exposes our wickedness and our inability to make ourselves right. We cannot perform ourselves into holy perfection. And it's only when we come to the end of ourselves and recognize that we are in peril, that we are weak, that we're able to have peace with God. Only when we recognize our desperate condition, our need for a Savior, is He able to keep us from drowning. Is He able to pluck us out of the ocean of our sin and set us on the shores of His mercy and of His love. Only when the guardian of the law drives us to the end of ourselves, forces us to cry out as blind Bartimaeus does in the Gospel of Mark, to cry, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Only in that painful, desperate cry is faith able to come in and take hold. Only then, when we profess our utter blindness, is Christ able to make us see. It is here that we move our faith from faith in self and in our performance to faith in the promise. It is here that we move from being under the law to being under grace. It is here that the law moves from a burden that we are unable to bear to a birthright that we exult to walk in. It's here that the law shows us how to best love God. Because it is here that we are born of the Spirit, born again, the people of God. So that the law not only reflects His character, but in Christ, in our union with Christ, it also reflects our character. Because we have been justified, acquitted by faith. And it's no longer we who live, but Christ living in us. And the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. Who became a curse for us, that we might have the blessing. Indeed, the law does not negate the promise, but it drives us to the promise. To the end of ourselves. Love that verse in Romans. When we were weak, Christ died for us. And it's when we are weak that we find salvation, shalom, peace with God. True flourishing. True joy. And it's there we should rest. So I ask you this morning, friends, are you trusting in the promise of God or in your performance?